0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walke.
1: Good morning. Welcome. Welcome on this first Sunday of Lent to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Let us pray together. The studies don't all agree, Holy One. Some say children ask an average of 73 questions a day, others say it's 93. Still, others report that kiddos ask as many as 200 to 300 questions per day. The grown ups around them tend to report that it's more in the 500 to 1,000 range. Studies also reveal that grown-ups can't answer half of the questions children ask. Grown-ups confirm this. After all, who can be expected to know off the top of their head what animals pass gas? Or how much the moon weighs? Or why bison walk slow but run fast? Or what is the meaning of life? not having an immediate clear answer does not seem to dissuade children from asking their questions it does not seem to bother unsettle or discourage them they just keep asking grown-ups have questions too of course lots of them we just aren't always as eager to ask We let embarrassment, self-consciousness, or pride get in the way. We worry we might seem silly or ignorant. We are also not too fond of not having immediate, clear answers. But over and over again, Scripture tells us stories of people asking all kinds of questions. Where are you? Am I my sibling's keeper? Whom shall I send? Who do you say that I am? Who sinned? How many times should I forgive? If God is for us, who can be against us? In this season of Lent, set apart for seeking, grant us courage to ask our questions, Holy One. We just may find what we've been looking for, but if we are left wondering, Be with us as we continue to live our questions so that, to borrow a line from the poet, perhaps then, someday far into the future, we will gradually, without even noticing it, live our way into the answer. With inquiring hearts, we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for for in the day that you eat of it, You shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Last fall during the Jesus and Johnny Cash sermon series, I noted in one of the sermons that it could have turned into a repudiation of the doctrine of original sin. It could have, but we went a different direction. A few days later, I got an email from a church member who will call Carol, because that is her name. (laughs) Carol is not in trouble. Quite the opposite, Carol gets a star in her crown, Carol followed up to ask if I would consider preaching on the doctrine of original sin and what we might say beyond that many of us do not ascribe to that doctrine. There are few things that make a preacher happier than a request for help in the work of theological reconstruction. For someone to be discontent with just yelling about the things we don't believe anymore. But here's the deal, y'all. To preach on the doctrine of original sin means you are going to hear some language that you have never heard before from the pulpit. Or at least I have never heard in a sermon before. So... Buckle up, buttercup. The text we read today is most commonly known as the Fall, the event that caused humans to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. This is the story from which the doctrine of original sin was developed, although nowhere in this story is the word sin mentioned, much less the phrase original sin. In its most basic terms, writes Reverend Danielle Schroyer, the doctrine of original sin argues two things. One, that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, something negatively and permanently shifted in their nature. And two, this nature has been passed on to every human being since. This sin nature is described in a number of different ways, across denominations, but the themes are consistent. Catholics say we lost our original holiness and justice. Methodists say we are, quote, inclined to evil continually. The Westminster, larger catechism, used by Presbyterians and other Reformed denominations, say we are, quote, made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. National Baptists say our nature is positively inclined to evil. The prize, though goes to the Lutheran Book of Concord, which not only states that original sin is the entire absence of all good, but also that original sin gives us, quote, a deep, wicked, horrible, fathomless, inscrutable, and unspeakable corruption of the entire nature and all its powers. Isn't church fun? You may be wondering why I didn't quote what our denomination, the United Church of Christ, says about this. We are a non-credal denomination, so the UCC does not have a catechism like the Catholics and the Presbyterians or articles of religion to which we must ascribe, as do the denominations I noted above. We do have a statement of faith, which we are invited to consider to adopt, which reads in the relevant part, that God calls the world into being, creates humankind in the divine image, and sets before us the ways of life and death. God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. There isn't a part that tells us how terrible we are. To be sure, the lack of original sin doctrine in our statement of faith is not necessarily Um, something that makes us better than everybody. It really just shows our age. We are a young denomination formed not in the fires of, say, the Council of Nicaea, but in the civil rights era. But even without a declaration of original sin in the UCC statement of faith, we still find ourselves dealing with it in a myriad of ways In our time, it is apparent in the onslaught of legislation that seeks to regulate bodies, reproductive health care, sex, sexuality, and gender, whether by limiting treatment options for pregnant patients, banning gender-affirming care, forbidding evidence-based sex education in schools, or even prescribing drag shows. How did the doctrine of original sin get us here? My colleague, Rev. Danielle Schroyer, author of Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place, explains, One of the central problems with the doctrine of original sin is that it dramatically shifted our view of human sexuality. Once you believe we have a sin nature that is passed down one generation to the next, sex becomes a dangerous business. When the man and the woman eat the fruit in the garden, they realize they are naked and clothe themselves. This one detail in the story has been used by many to malign human sexuality. Of course, Genesis 3 does not alone explain the reason for Christianity's long history of disdain for sexual pleasure. Great Greek philosophers often spoke against the passions, and many saw any human desire, As sinful. When you add God and faith to that already common idea, it's a pretty powerful condemnation. Celibacy becomes the marker of true purity and holiness, and even Christian marriage is considered an unacceptable place for sexual enjoyment. Though the text itself gives us no such details at all, many early church theologians described the Garden of Eden as a sexually innocent place. Ambrose, the 4th century Archbishop of Milan, believed the garden was perfect, which he defined as entirely devoid of sex. He considered sexuality the worst sin of all, and chastity the only true way to return to a perfect state of righteousness. Sorry to everyone in the world. Third century theologian Origen pointed out that marriage itself only came into existence after the fall, which he reasoned was due to its constant danger of sexual sin. The overarching consensus was that sex was necessary, but not necessarily good. It's a pretty reluctant view of sex. Sex has nearly always suffered from overly pessimistic views. Again, for reasons too complicated to enumerate here, but these views became very specific as the doctrine of original sin developed. Tertullian lived in Carthage around 200 CE, and his theory, Traducianism, which Schroer calls the doctrine of original sperm, claimed that sin is passed on from one generation on to another, through sex. More specifically, it's passed on through semen, which is where we get the term seminal identity. He believed that all semen came from Adam because souls were created before the beginning of the world, and the souls are in the semen. This material soul transported all the male parts from one generation to the next. So sex was not only sinful, but the vehicle for all of human sin entirely. The doctrine of original sperm paved the way for the theory that the virgin birth was necessary to keep sin from being passed on to Jesus. And it's one of the reasons the Roman Catholic Church ended up promoting the doctrine of perpetual virginity for Mary, even though Scripture itself mentions that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born. If sexuality is impure, Mary could not take part and still be considered the holy mother of God. Augustine took Tertullian's doctrine of original sperm and pushed it even further because all the semen in the world was in Adam Then all of humanity was present in the garden. So not only do we share in Adam's semen, we also share in Adam's punishment. This was the first attempt at a legal explanation of sin. We were present at the scene of the crime, so at the very least we're liable for accomplice charges. Augustine also described sin as a hereditary moral disability. We are born this way, he said, and we can't do anything about it. We just cannot choose the good any longer. This, this of course, is the ground floor of what will become total depravity. And it comes through sex, because our guilt is inherited through Adam. And as for sex in the garden, Augustine admits that had they not eaten the fruit, eventually sex would have happened for procreation reasons, But because the garden is perfect, it would not have been pleasurable. (laughs) The doctrine of original sin is why some people think that anything that has to do with sex or sexuality needs to be repressed, regulated, and legislated. This is why almost all of the anti-trans, anti-queer, and anti-reproductive rights legislation comes from fundamentalist evangelical Christians. There is, however, a more faithful and consequently healthier way to read this story, which is to replace the doctrine of original sin with the understanding of original blessing A phrase first used by theologian Matthew Fox, who believed that the teaching of original sin, which Jesus had never heard of because he was Jewish, that doctrine had served empire builders very well because it creates a power hierarchy, but that we should actually be living into our original blessing, the awareness of the goodness of creation, that we are born good We can't help it, and that this is a path grounded in celebrating beauty and compassion and justice. The blessing is what actually comes first in our stories, which we find in Genesis 1, God's original blessing of us as being not just good, but very good. And so when we read the story through the lens of the original blessing, that we are good, very good as the center, we get a very different understanding of what transpires in the text we read today. Reverend Scheuer writes, when the man and the woman eat the fruit, we are not told how God feels about it. No verse or word gives us insight into God's emotions about it. We can only look to God's response. God walks in the garden and calls for them, an insight into the close relationship God keeps with them. When the man tells them they were hiding because they were naked, God asks, "'Who told you you were naked? "'Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat?' When the man says he took the fruit from the woman, God turns to her and says, What is this that you have done? We do not know the tone with which God says this, but it does not say that God shouted, stomped, yelled, or berated them. Because Genesis is a story set in contrast with other ancient Near East stories, we remember that the overall intent of the Genesis creation stories is to present a picture not of chaos, but of harmony. So though the verses do not tell us anything specific about God's tone, we can infer at the very least that God is not a raging lunatic or an angry tyrant because it would go against the purpose of providing a distinctive contrast to the pagan gods of the time. When the man lays blame on the woman and the woman lays blame on the serpent, God responds in backwards order, first to the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. And though the section does not contain does contain two curses neither of the curses are directed at the man or the woman God does not remove the original blessing and God does also, also does not bestow a curse first God tells the serpent it is cursed among all the animals and as we consider this story in its ancient Near East context, it's worth pointing out that the serpent was seen in many pagan religions as a god, or at least as a symbol of a god or a goddess. Sometimes the serpent was a symbol of chaos itself. So for God to stand over against the serpent as its creator is a de- declaration of God's sovereignty. When God curses the serpent and declares it will crawl on its belly for the rest of its days, it is a definitive declaration of who serves whom. Second, God tells the man the ground will be cursed because of him. For us to understand this curse, we need to remember the wider context of Genesis 2, where the man is placed in the garden to till and tend the soil. God plants the garden and sends rain upon it, and as God's creation, the soil is designed to bring life. I I mean, basically, the man has a pretty easy gig. Life is going to flourish with minimal effort on his part. After they eat of the fruit, God curses the ground, not the man, and tells the man his farming vocation will now be much more difficult including sweat and thorns and thistles. And while this shift is hardly a good one, it is not a comprehensive one. Despite the curse, the ground still does exactly what it is designed to do. It brings life, just as it was intended, albeit with more effort. Life will not come as easily, but it will still flourish with effort. Farming the land goes from easy to difficult, but the integrity of the land and the call of the farmer remain the same. We can say the same for the consequences, not the curses. God describes to the man and the woman, childbirth will be harder, relationships will be harder, tilling the soil will be harder, and this difficulty will last to the end of our human days. But God does not say, well... You're no good anymore. I take it back. God doesn't say, Now sin will be passed on through you to all generations, and thanks to you, everyone will die. <laughs> After God issues these two curses to the snake and to the ground, God makes garments for the man and the woman and clothes them And the clothes God provides are a vast improvement over the fig leaves the man and woman made themselves. They are leather garments, which will be soft and keep them warm and stand up to the weather. God sees their vulnerability and covers them. God does not tell them to get over their nakedness and deal with it. God does not force them to stand out in the cold, naked, for punishment. God simply covers them. Whatever consequences exist because of their actions, God's kindness remains, for God's blessing is ever abundant. They still belong to God, and God still cares for them. God still believes they are good. Very good. There is much more to say about this than can fit into a single sermon, but it's a start. It's enough for us to consider how things might be different if original blessing had been the primary message of Christianity instead of original sin. Perhaps, instead of banning drag shows, we would be banning assault weapons Instead of the Missouri legislature requiring female legislators to cover their shoulders, they would be clothing those who have no coat or cloak. Eighteen counties in Missouri have a poverty rate of over 20%. Instead of prohibiting gender-affirming care, we would be funding it as a way to celebrate the image of God in others, a God based on the descriptions in Scripture Is gender transcendent? What if we spent the rest of Lent living out our original blessing, finding the good, the very good, in ourselves and in others? Instead of of just railing about what we don't believe, Let's take a cue from Carol and ask more questions about what we believe so we can put it into practice. Theological curiosity is a sign of a deepening and growing faith. Let's dig in.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walke senior minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.